Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to say thank you. I know I say at the end of each episode, but truly from the bottom of my heart, thank you for everyone that tunes in and listens. I've been getting so many emails and so much feedback just on people who are listening, who are enjoying the podcast. So wanted to pause to say whether I've heard from you or not, thank you for listening. I hope that this podcast is something that's helpful, something that's that's valuable, something that you're learning something from, not just jargon or not just theory, but something that can actually be applicable. So for all of you, thank you for listening. When you do leave reviews, it means the world to me. If you're listening, I think you can only do it on Apple Podcasts, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you can leave a review, love to see all those, read those, and it means a lot when people do that. So thank you for everyone who has left a review or who has reached out, and really for anyone who's listened. I'm glad that this has been helpful to so many of you. Today's episode, we're actually be going to be going through a little bit of a case study. This is a question from a listener which I always appreciate getting. And it's a good question with a whole bunch of almost multifaceted responses that I want to provide. So as is the case with all questions, I can never give direct specific advice through the podcast. This is more for educational purposes and more for you to be able to see how I would think about this as an advisor. But we're going to go through this question and just dissect it and see what are the different things you should be thinking through as you come up with your own answer. So here is the question. The question is this. It says, hello, I am covered by a defined benefit plan that at age 62 offers me 17 different retirement options. The plan benefit does not increase the longer I work, but decreases by 5% every year worked beyond age 65. I turned 62 in a few months and I'm seriously considering retiring. My spouse and I have longevity on both sides and a healthy lifestyle and good health today. We have 3.4 million in tax deferred retirement accounts of which $100,000 is in a Roth. And about 1300 that might maybe supposed to mean 1.3 million, just as 1300 and other savings and liquid assets that we plan to use in retirement. We are debt free and our house is worth about 350,000. We have two children, 23 and 26, that have no college loans and are independent and employed. Congratulations. My wife is a year older and this is our social security options. Social security and then lays out the options there. We would like a retirement income of 180,000 per year. We have no long-term care insurance. My concerns and my questions are these. Number one, is $180,000 per year adjusted for inflation realistic? Number two, should I take the pension as a lump sum or an annuity? Number three, what age should we take Social Security benefits? Number four, I have concerns with future taxes and required minimum distributions. And number five, what should we do if we retire at the end of this year in terms of where we draw down funds and what about Roth conversions? All right. Well, thank you for that question. A lot of information in here. There, There is a lot of information that we don't have, but we're going to work with what we have and go through just a process to see how should you think about each of these questions. So number one, let's start with this. You ask, is $180,000 per year adjusted for inflation realistic? Now, from what I can see, and again, I know my information is not full here. There's, there's a little bit that's limited here, but from what I can see, I think so. One exercise I'd like to do is this, is I like to say, let's just look at a very simple approach, a simple solution to this. And if that solution works, 
well, then it can only go up from there. We can only improve it from there. So here, here's what I mean by that. Let's assume for a second, you take the 100% joint and survivor annuity. And in this case, that would be $4,553 per month. Let's also assume that on top of that, you collect age, you collect, both of you collect social security at age 62. Now that would be $2,235 per month for you and $1,891 per month for your wife. So if you add all those up, the 100% joint and survivor annuity, both collecting social security at 62, by the way, I'm not recommending that you do this. I'm just saying, what would this look like if you do? That's about 8,700 per month before taxes, of course, which is about $104,000 per year before taxes. So as we look at that, we see, okay, if 104,000 per year is coming to you before you even touch your portfolio, what that means is the remaining 76,000, and I know, again, we still have not factored taxes in, but the remaining $76,000 is coming from your portfolio. That's where it would need to come from for you to be able to maintain that lifestyle of 180,000 adjusted for inflation. Now, I know that you have $3.4 million in tax deferred retirement accounts. So that's gonna be 401ks, IRAs, Roth IRAs. And then the question it says, and about $1,300 in other savings and liquid assets. I'm not sure if that is really supposed to say 1300 or maybe that's supposed to be 1.3 million or so, but let's assume it is really 1300. So 1300 plus the 3.4 million, really it's just a 3.4 million that we're basing this off of. But if you need 180,000 per year, if annuity from the pension plus social security covers 104,000 of that, can you cover the remaining 76,000 from your portfolio? So let's see, $76,000 divided by $3.4 million, that comes out to about 2.2% which means the withdrawal rate that you'd have to take from your portfolio is about 2.2%. Now we haven't factored taxes in. Let's just for simplicity, double that. Let's say taxes are 50%, it's certainly not, but let's just kind of be extreme here. Even if you had to increase your withdrawal to 4.4% from your portfolio, you would still be in a good position to meet that. You would have met your $180,000 per year and you have a sustainable withdrawal rate. So the pension is going to take care of itself. Social security is going to take care of itself. You don't have to worry about how that's allocated or situated to keep receiving income. You really just need to worry about your portfolio. So in that case, could a portfolio generate 4.4% of income at a normal retirement age? Yes. Assuming it's invested correctly, it could. So my first thought here is, is 180,000 per year adjusted for inflation realistic? I do think so. I think it's realistic. Are there a lot of details I'd want to confirm? Yes. But at first glance, I think it is. One thing to think about is this. A lot of people, most people, maybe everyone, retirement is not linear. And what I mean by that is expenses in retirement are not linear. Retirement year one is probably going to look a lot different than retirement year 15 of retirement is going to look a lot different than year 30 of retirement. There's different things that happen along the way. So it's not always one fixed expense of 180000 per year, year one, year two, year three, year four, just for inflation, of course. It usually varies. Maybe in the beginning of retirement, you're traveling more, you're seeing more things, you're doing more things, you have your health, you have your energy, and that's when you're doing the most things. Maybe on the latter end of retirement, there's more healthcare costs, there's more doctor's bills, there's more expenses related to that. Maybe other parts of retirement, you're helping to fund grandchildren's college, or you're doing things from a family standpoint and helping children. Just throwing out examples here. It's not always going to be the exact same, which I know that you know. I'm just kind of directing this at your question here. Is 180000 per year realistic? I certainly think so, but it, one helpful exercise sometimes is to see, will it be exactly that amount each year, 
or will that fluctuate over time? But that's the first question, and that's my first response. My initial feeling is, yes, I do believe that's realistic when you look at your, what I like to call non-portfolio income of Social Security for the both of you, plus pension, plus portfolio income. So could your portfolio sustainably bridge the gap between your expenses of 180000 per year and your income sources of 104000 per year from Social Security and pension? Next question is about the pension. Should I take the pension as a lump sum or an annuity? Now, there are pros and cons to each, of course. And if you go back to episode, I believe it's episode number four, one of the initial episodes, this was actually the topic. Should I take an annuity, which means that you take the pension and you say, okay, you know what? I don't want any lump sum. I just want my pension company or my company to guarantee a fixed monthly amount for me. That's the annuity. It's just, it's like social security would be. It's just a fixed monthly amount that you can expect to receive regardless of what happens in the stock market. Or should I take the lump sum? So you don't get any monthly income, but you're able to take a lump sum that oftentimes you roll over into an IRA, traditional IRA, and can then invest it like it's your IRA or 401k or something else like that. So looking at this, let's go through some of the pros and cons. Now, the pro of an annuity, the annuity option is it's a guarantee. So it's kind of nice. No, okay, I'm going to retire and my company's pension is just going to pay me out this specific amount every single month for as long as I live. And maybe even as long as my spouse lives, depending on the election that I, or the option that I elect. So that is nice. Having a guaranteed level of income is something that none of us would turn down. No one would turn down if you know there's an amount of income coming in. So that is a pro. The other pro is it lasts forever. Whether you live until 85 or 95 or 105, that annuity is going to last for the rest of your life. So even if there's longevity, which you mentioned there is in your question, you said, my wife and I, we have longevity, we have good health. Well, an annuity can help with that because as long as you live, the annuity is going to be making payments for the entirety of that time. And then just there's the peace of mind factor. The other pro of an annuity is you don't need to worry about it. It's not something that you have to manage. It's not something that you have to rebalance. It's not something that you have to be monitoring. It just shows up. It's just money every month that shows up that you don't have to worry about. So those are some of the benefits of the annuity. Now, the cons, the cons of an annuity, there's there's a few of those too. So this is would be where maybe be more in your favor to elect the lump sum. The first con is just opportunity cost. So you always want to just run an initial analysis of what is the amount of the annuity that I could receive and what is the amount of the lump sum that I could receive because I want to compare and contrast those. Now, I skipped over this in the question because there's a lot of options. And as you mentioned, there's 17 different retirement options to choose from, which I know can be overwhelming. So when you have an annuity or when you have a pension, the pension company says, here's all the different options you can select. I'm just going to go through a few of these to give the example. This is from the listener question, from Brian's question here. He says, the lump sum option is he could have a lump sum of about $1,027,000. So Brian could go and he could elect to take $1,027,000 and roll that over into a traditional IRA where he has full control over it. That's one option. Another option is what's called a single life annuity. The single life annuity says Brian will receive these income or this, this income for as long as he is living And as soon as he passes, the income disappears. So if Brian lives for 40 years, he'll receive 40 years of annuity income. If Brian lives for four months, he'll receive four months of annuity income, and then it will disappear if he passes away after that. So the single life annuity income is $4,886. 
So the first option is do I take $1,027,000 as a lump sum, or do I take $4,886 for the rest of my life? Now, another option is what's called the 100% Joint and Survivor Annuity. And what that is, is that says, okay, Brian, you can take this annuity and it will last for the, the remainder of your life. But not only that, it will also last for the remainder of your wife's life. So if you predecease your wife, she doesn't need to be worried that that income will go away. She will then have the income for the rest of her life too. Now it's a lower amount. The single life annuity that was based just on Brian's life was $4,886. The 100% joint survivor benefit would be $4,553. So about $330 fewer dollars per month in order for Brian's wife to also get this benefit for the rest of her lifetime. So how do you choose between those? And by the way, there's other options. You can have 50% joint survivor annuity, 75% joint survivor annuity. And all that means is you can elect one amount while the primary annuitant, in this case, Brian is living in a lesser amount. So 50% of that benefit, 75% of that benefit when the surviving spouse, if the surviving spouse collects that, if Brian were to predecease her. So there's a lot to look at here. What I like to compare initially is always the lump sum option compared to the 100% joint and survivor option. This is just kind of a simple way of looking at it. And I say, okay, the 100% joint and survivor annuity, that will pay $4,553 per month. If you look at that and you multiply that by 12 and then divide that by the lump sum, you get 5.3%. Now, what does that mean? Why did I just do that? I like to look at it like this. I say, okay, if I take the lump sum, I know from a lump sum what a sustainable withdrawal rate is. We've done different episodes on this. We've talked through this. What percent can I take out of my portfolio each year to live on without worrying about running out of money? So we've seen that you can take, depending on how you look at it, four to 5%. Let's call it four and a half percent in this case from a lump sum and live on that. Well, in this case, if we look at the joint survivor annuity, say, okay, well, if I can take $4,553 per month, and I get that for 12 months in a year, that's $54,636 per year of income that this annuity is paying me or that this would that I would be generating from the this annuity option. That represents, so if I divide that by the $1,027,000 that I could have from a rollover, that represents kind of a withdrawal equivalent of about 5.3%. So 5.3% of the lump sum amount is what the annuity company or what the pension would pay me as an annuity. So at first I look at that and say, okay, that's great. I could receive 5.3% of the rollover value if I take it as an annuity, or I could roll it over and only be able to generate about 4.5% as a sustainable withdrawal rate going forward. And at first it makes it look like the annuity option is the better bet because of that. But this is what you have to keep in mind. If a portfolio can support about 4.5% of income, that is a starting point that gets adjusted for inflation. So that's to say what level of income can a portfolio support today, assuming that that income will increase by about 3% per year to keep up with inflation. Annuities, unless it's some type of a government annuity, most pensions, most annuity options do not get adjusted for inflation. So if this annuity option is paying 5.3% today, when you divide the annuity option by the lump sum option, 10 years from today, it's still paying 5.3% of that initial value. 15 years from today, it's still paying 5.3% of that initial value. So the dollar amount remains the exact same every year, but if inflation is increasing, the purchasing power is actually gradually diminishing each and every year. 
Now let's go back to the portfolio example. If a portfolio can support about 4.5% of income from whatever the lump sum starting point is, so let's say we have a million bucks, that portfolio could create about 45000 per year with the expectation that that will increase by about 3% per year. So after 15 years, for example, it's closer to about a 7% withdrawal rate based upon the initial value. Meaning that if you're starting with a million bucks at 4.5% withdrawal, that's about $45,000 that it could generate pre-tax. Well, 15 years from now, based on the projections, that would be generating about 70,000 per year. So about 7% of the initial lump sum starting value while the annuity would still be fixed. So I, I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of confusing to explain. Sometimes that's something that's easier seen through a visual, but one of the downsides of the annuity option is it isn't indexed for inflation. So if at first the annuity amount in terms of income it can create as compared to the lump sum option is higher than what your more traditional portfolio could do, that doesn't mean it will stay higher. In many cases, what you could do on your own will gradually start to replace that annuity income and start to exceed it when you factor in inflation over time. So the opportunity cost here or the fact that an annuity isn't indexed for inflation is sometimes a downside of the annuity option. The other reason it's helpful to look at what would the annuity pay in relation to what the lump sum equivalent is in the pension option is you can just get a sense for what's the opportunity cost. If the annuity amount is significantly higher than what you could create from a, a standard withdrawal rate from the lump sum, then it's probably a good bet to take the annuity. But sometimes you look at this and say, oh my gosh, the, if a, a properly diversified portfolio, if you took the lump sum option, could do significantly better than what the pension company is promising to pay via an annuity, well then the downside is the opportunity cost. So getting a sense of what could you do with the rollover as compared to the annuity option. A couple other downsides of the annuity. One big one is there's really no beneficiary outside of potentially your spouse. So we mentioned you could do a joint and survivor option where if you predecease your spouse, your spouse keeps receiving some income amount from the annuity, but your beneficiary. So maybe if you have children or grandchildren, they would not get anything. Whereas let's take kind of a dramatic example. Let's assume that you elect the joint and survivor option and that five years into retirement, tragically, you and your spouse pass away. Well, that annuity just disappears. There, it doesn't continue to children or grandchildren or anything. It's just gone. Whereas if you've done the rollover, so in this case, a little over a million bucks, if you had rolled that money over into a traditional IRA, maybe you took out some of it, but let's assume that you took out only what it grew by, there would still be a million twenty-seven thousand bucks that would pass on to future generations. So there is the lack of a beneficiary. It does not help your heirs at all when you have an annuity in terms of what you could pass down to them. The last downside, Lisa will mention here, is there's really no ability to do tax planning when you elect the annuity option. One part of tax planning is understanding what does your tax bracket look like today based upon your different income sources and things coming in versus what will it look like in the future. And you start to manage your tax bill or your tax thresholds with that. With an annuity, you're going to have a fixed amount of income every single year. You can't defer that. You can't take more in one year. It's a fixed amount. So that's just going to fill up certain tax thresholds or tax brackets for you. And there's no way around that. Well, with the lump sum, for example, what if you do want to do Roth conversions in the first few years of retirement? Well, can you roll over your annuity to a traditional IRA and start to convert bits and pieces of it to a Roth IRA? And can you do so intentionally as opposed to having a fixed guaranteed amount each month? So not saying that this is everything, but it's certainly something to look at where with an annuity, you don't get that option. 
So what should you do in terms of the pension as a lump sum or annuity? Both seem to be good options. And without knowing all the information, it's hard to give a specific recommendation for you. The good news is both are pretty substantial benefits. Having an annuity of at least 4,500 per month is great. Having a lump sum of over a million bucks from that is great. So two good options. I can't give a specific recommendation without knowing a lot more information, but those are some of the pros and cons. With that, again, episode four, I talked more in depth about this of how do you decide between those two, but those are some of the things to look at. Next part of Brian's question is concerns with future taxes and RMDs. Yes, this would be a concern. Absolutely. There's a lot of money, it seems like, in pre-tax retirement accounts, in pensions, in, of course, you have social security benefits, other things going on. Now, this isn't such a big problem that it should prevent you from retiring. I don't think, I don't think even close. You know, if you're in a position to do so, then the taxes or the RMDs, it shouldn't be something that prevents you from retiring, but it should be something you look at very seriously because as your assets grow and the more that you have, the more opportunity there is for tax planning to save you a pretty significant amount of money over time. Now, with that, here's what I would do. Number one, as you're thinking through taxes, Number one, look at the best withdrawal sequence. In episode 39, the episode was called, where should I pull funds from first in retirement? And it walked through a whole order of operations of what do you do to determine where money should come from? And so you want to identify what's the best withdrawal sequence because that will give shape to some of your tax strategy. And really the best withdrawal sequence is, is largely driven by tax strategy. Once you've done that, then you can see if Roth conversions make sense in early years. If you want to know more about that episode 50, I talked about how to use Roth conversions to save huge amount in taxes. Go back and listen to that episode. That's episode number 50. But based upon that withdrawal sequence, does it make sense to take advantage of Roth conversions in early years? And the interesting thing about this is so often with episodes, it's kind of looking at one aspect of financial planning at a time. But what we can start to see here is by going through this kind of a case study, you can see how every aspect of financial planning ties into itself or ties into each other. Tax planning is based upon when do you take social security, which is also based upon when do you take your pension and do you take your pension as an annuity or do you do roll it over versus how do you have your investments allocated versus what do you want to do from a tax strategy and estate planning strategy. So all of these things cannot be separated. They all tie into each other. So as we look at consider Roth conversions in early years, if you look at Roth conversions and say, yes, this is absolutely something I want to do, well, that may mean it makes sense to delay Social Security. Maybe it makes sense to roll over your pension as opposed to taking an annuity. Because what that's doing is it's ensuring that you don't have any layers of income in those first few years of retirement, which sounds kind of ironic. Why would I not want layers of income? Well, it's not that you don't want those layers of income. It's you're deferring them to later so they become larger layers of income. But number two, think of it as clearing up your tax bracket. Think of it as clearing out any income that you might have so you can be strategic about those Roth conversions. The less you have in other income, the more that you can convert to Roth IRAs and do so in a manageable tax bracket. From there, so take a look at Roth conversions, see if those make sense. If giving is a part of what you're doing, if there's charities that you give to or tithe or whatever it might be, if giving is a big part of what you're doing, consider giving strategies. Episode 51, I talked about how do you combine Roth conversions with giving strategies to save huge amounts of money and taxes over time. Consider doing that. If RMDs are a concern or if taxes are a concern, and if giving is a big part of what you're doing, that episode could potentially save you a whole bunch of money if you implement what I'm talking through correctly there. And then for, like I mentioned, this ties into everything else. The pension rollover maybe provides for more of an opportunity for tax planning. 
So this question about taxes being a concern and when should you take your pension, they tie into each other. If you take the annuity, there's not as much opportunity for tax planning. It's a fixed monthly amount that you're going to pay taxes on every single year. You can't shift that income. You can't, whereas with a rollover, you could take income in certain years. You can convert parts of it. You can defer income in your 401k or your IRA for longer periods of time. There's just more that you can do with that. The next part of this question, I actually skipped over this and go backwards here. Yes, what age should we take Social Security benefits? So I'll, re- I'll refer you to episode 43 of how to max my Social Security benefits to get a deeper dive on this. But again, it's pros and cons. The benefits of delaying and taking later is you have longevity protection. You mentioned you're healthy. You mentioned there is longevity in your family. The nice thing about Social Security is it is like that annuity, where as long as you live, you will keep receiving Social Security payments. So if you live to 120 years old, you're going to keep receiving Social Security payments. And the longer that you expect to live, the more it makes sense to delay the time that you collect. If you look at a super simple analysis, a break-even analysis, people look at Social Security as saying, okay, at what point, you know, if I'm going to delay Social Security to 67, for example, instead of 62, at what point have I broken even from that decision? Meaning at what point do the cumulative benefits of collecting at 67, so collecting a higher monthly amount, but for fewer months, at what point does that outweigh the benefit of collecting at 62, where you had a lower monthly benefit, but you had more months of collecting it? The super simple analysis is somewhere around age 80. Now, that analysis isn't fully complete because if you're not going to collect at 62, meaning if you're going to defer your benefit, well, there's an opportunity cost to that. You're having to pull money out of your investment accounts earlier, which means you're not getting as much growth on those investment accounts. So when people say, oh, the break-even age is age 80, well, it's not truly age 80 because you also have to factor in the opportunity cost of the investments you're pulling earlier and the fact that you're taking more from those investments and whatever you're taking from those investments can't keep growing for you. So when you look at it that way, it totally depends upon how you're invested, your risk tolerance, what your portfolio looks like, but it pushes the break even maybe later to your mid to late 80s, depending on a number of factors. So the longer you live, the more it makes sense to push out your social security. It provides a sense of longevity protection. Longevity risk is a real risk many people are facing of life expectancies are continuing to increase. And what happens is life expectancies continue to increase. Well, from a retirement planning standpoint, that's more years of income, your portfolio, your plan needs to be able to support because you're no longer working in those years. So social security is one way of protecting against that. The other benefit is you kind of get a guaranteed return. So every year that you don't collect social security, your benefit is guaranteed to go up. Now, part of this can be seen as a rate of return as, oh, we're getting a guaranteed six, seven, eight percent rate of return. Not really, because a real rate of return, if I have a million bucks in my investment and I get a 10% rate of return, well, that means I now have 1.1 million bucks in my investment account. It's grown, and that, that is true value. Most of the increase in Social Security isn't a true growth in the benefit that you're receiving as much as Social Security is looking at actuarial tables and saying, okay, we're paying so-and-so fewer months of benefits because he or she is waiting to collect, so we're going to increase those benefits because of that. So it's not a true rate of return as much as me telling you, hey, you have an option. I'll give you 100 bucks for the next two years, or I'll give you $200 starting next year for one year. Well, by the end of two years, you've collected $200 in both of those scenarios. You haven't gotten a 100% rate of return by delaying that for a year. 
So same thing kind of applies to social security, where yes, there is a rate of return if you live past a certain age, but most of the increase in the benefit is due to the fact that you're collecting it for fewer years. The other nice thing about social security is it's usually tax advantaged. So the full benefit is not going to be included in your federal state tax return. You're only going to be taxed on part of it. And then most states, many states don't tax social security. So it's not just a higher income, but it's a higher tax-free income that you're getting. So that just goes to enhance the guaranteed return that you're getting. The downsides of deferring your benefit, collecting at later ages, full retirement age or later, is there's the opportunity cost that I talked about, where everything that you're taking from Social Security means you're taking more from your portfolio, which is an amount that is now lost. The other thing is Social Security's use it or lose it. Whereas your IRA balance would pass on. If you don't use all of your IRA, if you don't use all of your investments, if you don't spend through everything that you have, that passes on to future generations. Social Security doesn't do the same thing. So it's use it or lose it in the sense that if you defer your benefit until 70 and you pass away at 71, we've kind of burned through some of your investments for the few years leading up to 70, that those investments no longer pass down to your children or future generations just increase your social security benefit and then your social security benefit only lasts for one year. Now, of course, that's a dramatic example, but I have seen it happen. That should not be what determines your strategy, but just something to think about. One thing that I like to think about when spouses are both retiring by 62 or before is sometimes what makes sense is for one spouse to collect early and one spouse to delay. Why does that make sense? Well, social security is really a two-person decision. Because if both spouses have a benefit and one spouse predeceases the other, the surviving spouse can choose to continue collecting their own benefit or they can collect what the surviving or the deceased spouse's benefit was. So by having one spouse with a high benefit and one spouse with a low benefit, you're, you're taking care of two things. You're collecting early and living on that income, which can be helpful. But by the other spouse delaying, if you both collect at 62 and one of you passes on fairly early in retirement, now the surviving spouse has a much lower benefit for the rest of their life. But if one spouse waits till 67 or 70 or somewhere in between there, the surviving spouse is guaranteed to have at least that level of income in retirement. All right. And now last part of this question is what should we do if we retire at the end of this year in terms of where we draw down funds from in Roth conversions? So this is going to be a little bit more detailed. I won't go through the full thing, but I'll kind of refer to episodes that we talked about. But what you're going to essentially do is you're going to see what tax bracket are you in today. So see if your CPA or financial advisor can help with that. And if not, if you don't have a CPA or financial advisor, then maybe get one because this can be a huge opportunity for you. Shameless plug, of course, this is the exact type of work that I do as part of the comprehensive planning work I do for clients, many of which who are about to retire. And this is really a huge focus of what we're doing. But if you don't have a CPA or a financial advisor, or if this isn't something that you can do on your own, it may make sense to reach out to one to find them. So start with that. See what tax bracket you're in today. Then see what your expected tax bracket will be down the road, especially at the age where you have to start taking required minimum distributions. Today, that's 72. There is legislation that's being talked about of pushing that to 73 or 74 or 75, depending on a few different factors. And by the time that you're listening to this, if you're listening a while from now, that may have already changed. So anywhere from 72 to 75 is likely where required distributions will begin by the time you're listening to this. Today, it's 72. But see what your tax bracket will be at that point, which is going to be a function of the income that you have. So social security, pension, IRA distributions, dividends, everything else that goes into that. And so when you get a sense of what tax bracket are you in today, what tax bracket are you in in the future, 
then ask yourself, does it make sense to focus on Roth conversions? If you're going to be going through what they call almost the the tax valley of high income right before you retire, low income for the next several years between retirement age and required minimum distribution age, and then high income again once required distributions start, that could be a great case to do Roth conversions in those years, in those middle years, those valley years, to convert bits and pieces at a lower marginal tax bracket so that your required distributions aren't as high, which means your tax bill won't be as high later on. So if it does that, well, then maybe it makes sense to focus on Roth conversions and live off of your non-qualified investments to free up your tax bracket for conversions. So live on cash, live on investments you have in your your non-retirement account to keep your tax bracket low, which allows you to intentionally gain or intentionally realize income on the Roth conversion side. If not, then maybe do you draw down your IRAs now to minimize the required minimum distributions in the future by essentially managing your IRA balance, not letting your IRA get too big, which is a good problem to have, but not letting it get too big by withdrawing funds from it as soon as you retire to keep it under certain thresholds by the time you're 72 or beyond so your required distributions don't get too out of control. Sometimes the best strategy is to let tax-free and tax-deferred assets grow longest because of the tax-deferred nature of that growth and pull money from your non-qualified accounts, from cash accounts, from other things like that, taking full advantage of the tax-deferred nature of what those IRAs, 401ks, Roth IRAs can do. So this, like I said, this part of it is more confusing. And again, this this can be the time where it does make sense to reach out to a financial planner or to your CPA if you've not done so already. If this is something you have questions with, you can just reach out to me directly. My work email address is james at rootfinancialpartners.com. You can visit my financial planning website at rootfinancialpartners.com and see what some of that work looks like. Or if you have a financial planner or a CPA, or this is the type of work that you're already doing, this would be a very important piece because when it comes to where do you draw funds from, it's really largely determined by what's the most tax efficient way to draw those funds in retirement. So I know this is a longer episode. Thank you everyone for listening, but I think this is helpful to not just look at one topic at a time and say, how do you look at this topic? But really look at a case study, look at an example to see what are the things that you should be thinking through and how do decisions with one aspect to your plan impact things on the other side of your plan. So thank you, Brian, for your question. I hope that was helpful. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope that this framework that we went through to answer this was helpful for you as well. If you're listening and you have a question or you have a topic that you'd love for me to answer in a future episode, you can go to readyforretirement.co. So readyforretirement.co is the podcast webpage. And there is a tab there called submit your question where you can submit a question like this for me to answer on a future episode. Thanks as always. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.